Uh, what do you know to be special about September the 14th, 1985? A very special date. There's one person who knows. I got married. <laughs> and Rachel got married too. <coughs> yeah, Rachel Frances Imbry married Philip George Dudley Harmon. <laughs> Dudley. Uh, at Southall Evangelical Church. Uh, what about July the 19th? That's not right. July the 29th, 1981. No? Somebody called uh, Philip Charles Arthur George or something like that. <laughs> Charles Philip Arthur, Arthur George Windsor and Diana Frances Spencer <coughs> at St. Paul's Cathedral. Not, not that different, really, from Southall Evangelical Church. Um, <laughs> Psalm 45 <coughs> is about a royal wedding. It's an interesting psalm, and it's a song of praise uh, to a king, not a song of praise to God. Um, and verse 0, uh, those little bits that have come in, those, those things that say, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. That's actually part of the scripture. It doesn't have a verse number, but it's part of the scripture. And uh, it tells us that the composer is uh, one of the sons, or the, all are the sons of Korah. The Korahites <coughs> are from the Korathite division of the Levites, and uh, some were gatekeepers and porters of the temple. Uh, they were musicians, but they were also the ones that carried stuff, which uh, for those of us <laughs> who set up every Sunday morning <laughs> is strangely appropriate. Uh, there are 11 psalms uh, attributed to the sons of Korah. So let's, let's read this psalm. <clears throat> I'll read it. When I said that last time, everyone joined in. Uh, you can do, but I, I'm going to read it. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her, 
With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. So this psalm is uh, for a royal wedding. Just go to a blank screen there. Oh, we don't know. I don't want that one. We'll just leave it there. That's fine. Rewind. This psalm is for a royal wedding. <coughs> but who are the happy couple? And, and did they live happily ever after? Uh, well, some people think this is about Solomon and a, a queen from Egypt. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of evidence in the psalm that that's not the case. Uh, there's, there's references to fathers, and there's only one father that Solomon had that was a king. Uh, no fathers before that. Uh, references to battles. Uh, Solomon wasn't a battling, warring king. He was a king of peace. Um, reference to ivory palaces, Tyre, and so on. I don't want to go into all the detail, uh, because that isn't where we want to spend our time today. But uh, I'm going to conclude for now that this is the story of the wedding of Jehoram and Athaliah. And they were uh, married about 850 BC. Um, that's Jehoram, um, also known as Joram, of Judah. And he's the son of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Jehoshaphat was one of the great kings of, of, of Judah. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 17, uh, 3 to 6, we read, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat. And he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord and furthermore, he took the high places and Asherim out of Judah. So far, so good. Uh, perhaps there will be a happy ending after all. Uh, the bride, uh, Athalia, daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, king and queen of Israel, uh, northern country. Yes, uh, that Ahab and that Jezebel. It seems that this was a political marriage. Uh, perhaps it was an attempt to reunite the divided kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Uh, we shouldn't doubt the integrity of the writer. Uh, he is generally, genuinely excited about what's happening. This is the marriage of the son of one of the truly great kings in the line of David. It's an exciting time. It's a huge event. Hopes are high. Everyone is dressed up. There's wonderful pomp and ceremony. It's likely that the whole nation has turned out to see the spectacle, just as we will on the 29th of April. Look at the dress. Look at the jewels. Look at the bridesmaids. Uh, or like the BBC's cricket commentator, Brian Jonas Johnston, waiting excitedly outside St. Paul's Cathedral for Charles and Diana to appear, it's easy to get carried away. Yes, I can see the happy couple now. 
making their way down the steps of the pavilion. <laughs> Actually, he's not so far off, is it? Psalm 19, verse 5, talks about the sun being like a bridegroom coming out of its pavilion. I bet he didn't know that, though. <laughs> Happy ever after? Well, history tells us another story. 2 Kings, chapter 8, 18 to 19. <clears throat> and Jehoram walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. As the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Yeah, we, we, we're used to weddings not having happy endings, aren't we? Uh, even one of the royal weddings that we mentioned. Uh, it's surprising then, isn't it, that Psalm 45 remains and survived in the Psalter. Uh, it's unlikely that William and Kate will use any or, well, much or any of the music from their dad's, from his dad's wedding. Some things are better forgotten. Uh, better change the venue. Um, some things are better forgotten, especially shattered fairy tale romances. However, the psalm lived on long after Ahab's ungodly line was extinguished, when the northern, <coughs> northern kingdom had disappeared. And long after David's line had all but fizzled into the obscurity of exile, this psalm exists. Those in exile began to see the psalm, Psalm 45, as expressing their messianic hope. They looked forward to the day when God's eternal king, the true son of David, the Messiah, would rule the world forever with his queen, that's his people, by his side. Um, there's another religion that talks about the Queen of Heaven being Mary. The Queen of Heaven isn't Mary. The Queen of Heaven is the church. We should be able to see it more clearly. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. He's God's eternal King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The New Testament confirms that Psalm 45 is about Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 says, Of the Son, he says, and then it quotes, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the New Testament says that's about Jesus. Psalm 45, therefore, is about Jesus and his church. How much do you care about the church? Things that once belonged to someone famous are often highly prized by others. Did you know that Auto Trader now has a, a, a section devoted to second-hand celebrity cars? Um, some examples. An Aston Martin Vanquish, previously owned by Manchester United and England legend, Wayne Rudy. Get your bids in. Or a, Merce a Mercedes C-Class, 
previously owned by Steve, no, <laughs> by rock legend Roger Daltrey. Missed your chance there. A far too new. A far too new. A Ford Thunderbird, previously owned by Hollywood legend John Travolta. No, I'm not going to do that. For you, sir, where's he gone? There. A Bentley Arnage, is that right? Arnage. Arnage. <laughs> a, ben a Bentley Arnage. Previously owned by, by legendary, legendary musician and haggis-eating Rod Stewart. Legendary. Except for this. A unique Mercedes SSK replica previously owned by Sammy Davis Jr. and Bill Bailey. At what? At the same time. <laughs> Notice they are not legendary. Jesus loves the church more than anything else in the whole of creation. Jesus loves the church more than anything else in all creation. If you had a chance to have a share in the church, wouldn't you want it? Think of what it means to him. No celebrity compares with him. Think how highly he prizes the church. Doesn't that make you want it too? It should. Our culture is e extremely individualistic. Look out for number one, we're told, because no one else will. The lady with the, the iron lady with the handbag said, there is no such thing as society. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. And what about 50 things to do before you die? Get them in. Actually, there's a secret to that. If you, don't, if you want eternal life, don't even start. <laughs> it's quite easy to see, isn't it, how Frank Sinatra's My Way became top of the funeral director's charts. Has that rubbed off on us too, though? Has the world squeezed us into its mould? I was thinking when we were singing that last song, we could have changed all the eyes to we, or, or us, um, and that would have been cool. But I didn't want to. I think you know it's really important that we understand that as Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. But what I want to do today is take our attention off I and me, and I want to look at the church. It's all too easy to think of the church in terms of my needs and aspirations. Do I like the music? Well, it was good this week, wasn't it? Is the preacher too long? Probably. Will they look after my kids? Probably. We have a child protection policy, don't we? <laughs> Our policy is to protect your child. Uh, 
Do they, do they expect too much of me? I went once to a mega church in California and I met one of my colleagues and I was really excited to find he was a Christian. And what he said was, yeah, I love this church. I used to be in a tiny church, but here you can just sit down and relax. Uh, in the other church, you had to do lots of stuff. And, and here I can just become part of the... And I thought, that is so sad. So are you here today for you? Or are you here today for Jesus and his church? To paraphrase John Piper, do you love Jesus because he makes a big fuss of you? Or do you love Jesus because he's made you part of his people, the church, so that you can join with them in making a big fuss about him forever? Do you love Jesus because he makes a big fuss of you or because he has made you part of his church so that you, with them, can make a big fuss of him forever? Are you here because you know this is where Jesus loves to meet with his people? Did you know that Jesus also promises to turn up at our connect groups and at the prayer meeting? <laughs> Psalm 45 is about Jesus and the church. How do we know that? Let's find some proofs. Ephesians 5, if you want to turn to it, Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. We've actually had a reading already from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, about God's amazing plan. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now for your homework, go away and think about how you do that on your own without being together with God's people. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should also submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's how we know that Psalm 45 is about Christ and the church. That's one of the ways we know. Royal weddings, Jehoram and Athaliah, Charles and Diana, William and Kate, are about Jesus and the church. That's what Paul says. Ancient weddings, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Ahab and Jezebel, also about Christ and the church. Our own weddings, Phil and Rachel, Bill and Jenny, Steve and Belinda, Rupert and Fleur, Denzel Dorothy, Joe and Phil. They're also about Jesus and the church. Paul says that our submitting to one another in marriage is about reverence for Christ. As a church, then, we, we, we must honour, strengthen, nurture, and protect marriage. That's what we must do as a church. It's about the honour of Jesus. It's about reverence for Jesus. It should be no surprise to us that our enemy wants to destroy our marriages. Now, Paul says we should not be ignorant of our enemy's devices. So if we go out of here blithely assuming that everything's fine and that we don't have anything to work at here, we will come a cropper. Let's pray for one another in our marriages and let's uphold marriage in high esteem in the church because it's about Jesus and the church. In August 2009, Nigel and Callie arranged a special evening for us, an evening with Ruth and Boaz. Uh, if you want to hear the talks that Nigel gave on that occasion, they are on the website and they're well worth a listen. And uh, that is the end of my introduction. <laughs> You think I'm kidding. <laughs> I want to use Psalm 45 to give you a glimpse of how great Jesus is. And I want to challenge you to love the church as much as he does. Psalm 45 divides into five sections. Verse 1 is the writer. Shall we call him the best man? The best man introduces himself. Verse 2 to 9, the best man addresses the bridegroom. It's a bit like the speech, isn't it? The bridegroom. Okay, so he's at the, at the wedding and he's addressing the bridegroom in front of everyone. Then verses 10 to 12, he addresses the bride. And in verse 13 to 15, he just muses on the beauty and the glory of the bride for everyone to say, isn't she, isn't she turned out? Well, you've heard best man speeches like this, haven't you? 
The best man's closing remarks come in verse 16 and 17. And they're addressed back to the bridegroom. I just want to pray before we go any further. I want to pray in terms of verse 1 and verse 17. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will cause my heart to overflow as I speak of you. Lord Jesus, give me skill in the use of words. Jesus, make your name to be remembered in this generation. Jesus, I want these dear people to praise you forever and ever. Verse 2a. You are the most handsome of the sons of man. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Isaiah 53 says... He had no formal majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But this is different. From the other side of the cross, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you feel that way about Jesus? Though you don't see him, you love him. He is handsome, the most handsome of the sons of man. Jesus is more beautiful, more precious than anything else. Is that how you think of him? John Newton, former slave trader, blasphemer, he said, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Is that how you think about Jesus? Verse 2b. Grace is poured upon your lips. Graceful speech. Sort of speech that is just easy to listen to, lovely to listen to. Luke 4, 16 to 22, tells us about the time when Jesus began his ministry. Capernaum goes into the synagogue, and as was his custom, Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or grace, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But his speech also proclaims grace. Grace is something we get that we don't deserve and we cannot earn. Um, We looked at this a little while ago. Luke 23, 33 and 34. When they came to the place of the skull... They crucified him there, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Gracious words. One of the criminals who were hanged with him said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All of his life, gracious words and words of grace. God has blessed you forever. Verse 2c. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. In Luke chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, we read that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Those words had never been heard in history. We've been waiting and waiting from the time that Adam fell to hear those words. And here is the beloved one, the one who is blessed by God forever. Moving on, verses 3 to 5. Jesus, mighty warrior, and gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, in your majesty ride out for the course of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds, and your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. It's not a big jump, is it, to see that fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True and righteous, in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire and in his head are many diadems and his name is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in flying linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not a lot of meekness there. So where's the meekness? Well, there's an old to- uh, there's, a, there's a thing that's important for us to understand, um, and it's called the telephoto effect. If we can, Andrew, if we could have that aircraft. Uh, this is the telephoto effect. It's uh, when you look at something a long way away with a, a, a lens that is very powerful. Um, what happens is it looks as if things are very squashed together. Um, this is the thing that, you know, when the red arrows do their thing, it looks like they're going to hit each other, but they're actually a long way apart. It's just the line of sight and the, the effect of the lens. If you give me the next slide, I think, which is... This is the same scene shot with four different lenses so that the, the barn and the car don't move just the camera moves and the lens changes quite often old testament prophets were looking a long way into the distance with a powerful lens and what they saw was things like 
the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus as if they were one thing. Um, by the time of Jesus, it's very apparent that some think that Jesus is here and some things are not yet here, top left-hand corner. Um, you remember John the Baptist had a problem with that. Are you the one that will come? I don't see the judgment. <laughs> um, so that's the telephoto effect. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble, meek, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? That should remind us of Jesus' first coming and his arrival into Jerusalem. Yeah? So we can see that these Old Testament prophets are seeing things squashed together. So yes, there is a fulfillment of this psalm in Jesus' first coming, and there is a fulfillment in his second coming. There's certainly a fulfillment, isn't there, in, in the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem meekly, but victoriously, to go to the cross in his confrontation with the religious officials sharp arrows in their hearts. Um, in the trial of Jesus, we see meekness, don't we? As Isaiah 53 puts it, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 6 to 9 speaks of the eternal rule of King Jesus. Once every battle has been fought and the last enemy destroyed, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. We've already seen from Hebrews 1 that verse 6 and 7 applies to Jesus. And we shouldn't then be squeamish about saying from this that Jesus is God. Your throne, O God, is forever. And here, at long last comes the bride. But we're going to jump to verse 13 to look at the description. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold in many colored robes she's led to the king with her virgin companions following her. With joy and gladness they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. The beauty of the church is not her own, but was bought for her at the cross by Jesus. In royal robes, she doesn't deserve. That's what we sang. That's why I wanted to sing, in royal robes, we don't deserve. We live to serve your majesty. Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her. That means he went to the cross for her. He died for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I'm all for wearing brides wearing white at weddings. It's a wonderful picture. I remember going to a wedding where uh, I had to take one of the little ones, I don't know which one it was, uh, out to the loo. Uh, and that was near the front door. And it, the doors were shut, uh, but the bride had arrived and was there with her bridesmaids and uh, dad and stuff like that. And they were making the final arrangements. And she looked absolutely amazing. But to see the preparation that was going on, just to, to make her perfect... I hope when you go to a wedding, you'll think in terms of Christ and the church. The bride, just the the most beautiful day in her life. Quite often a huge amount of money spent to make it that way. Every last bit of attention to detail. Um, A stunning sight. Uh, But the church is made that way by Jesus with the royal robes that he provides, by the washing that he gives that removes every stain and every blemish. It's not covered up with makeup. It's actually removed. So let's be careful about how we think and talk about the church. It's not about our preaching our music and our prayers or even our good works that make us beautiful. No, it's what Jesus did to make the church his bride. See his love, we sang. King of heaven dying for the church. This is Jesus in his glory. When we see the church we see something that Jesus did that is glorious. We should delight in the church. We should relish in the church. All the glory belongs to Jesus. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed individuals for God. No, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them a kingdom and priests plural to our God and they shall reign on the earth so let's just rewind to verse 10 and now the the best man is going to address the bride got some important things to say to the bride. Hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Uh, When a young couple gets married, they leave their parents and they cleave to each other. 
There is a new household. They leave the influence, the security, the provision, the authority, the interference of one house and they start a new one together. They leave and they cleave. Forget your people and your father's house. Jezebel had to be the ultimate mother-in-law. <coughs> Jezebel, the mother-in-law from hell, almost literally. <laughs> Why would you want to stay in her household? Jesus has freed us from all the power of the devil. So why should we play with fire anymore? Church? We've got to be pure. We're in a new household now. We've left Jezebel and Ahab's house. We're in Christ's household now. We've got to be pure. We've got to step up. Isn't he worth it? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <coughs> Matthew five fourteen. Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word but by the open statement of truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God there's no place for the ways of the world in the church there's no place for the world's methods in the church we have turned from those verse 11a, this is the one that just knocked me over. The king will desire your beauty. The church, the king desires your beauty. Jesus wants the church to be beautiful. He gave himself so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Maybe that's all to come. No. We, we're to practice that now. We will be transformed from one degree of glory into another. That's what Paul says. It starts now. He that's begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. Paul was confident of that. But the work has begun. And the Old Testament, wonder. Becoming a charismatic, discovering Zephaniah 3.17, I tell you. Having been one who was a worthless worm crawling on his knees to the throne of grace. Mixed metaphor. Um, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The, the Hebrew actually says he'll dance. 
when we come together, let's give him something to dance about. It's amazing, isn't it? He is your Lord, so bow down to him. It's our call to worship. It's exclusive. He is our Lord. Not time away with the family. We'll be careful there, but not not the holiday idol, not the um, car idol, not the XYZ job idol, homework idol, whatever. He is our Lord. Not our music idol. Not our AV multimedia presentation idol. Um, No, he is our Lord. And we bow down to him and none other. Corporate worship is and always will be a feature of the church. And maybe we need to get a little bit... Uh, people were sitting down, that's fine if you're tired, but we need to apply ourselves to this. We will do this. Verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of the people. I've no idea what to do with that. Um, I don't think he's talking about gift aid tax benefits um, and it's not the prosperity gospel Um, but God's church is central to God's plan for the universe the whole creation waits for the sons of God to be revealed the whole creation is groaning waiting for the church Ephesians 3, 8 to 10, back in Ephesians, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now that plan is the thing that he raves about in the book of Ephesians, which is the bringing together of Jew and Gentile in one church through Christ. That's what Ephesians is about. It's about demolishing the partition. It's about bringing the two together. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God, the displayed wisdom of God, may be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The church is about showing the greatness of God and his plan to redeem the whole of creation. not little is it the church is about this huge plan and it's to demonstrate to powers and authorities now these power and authorities are not nice you go and look for power and authorities in Ephesians and you'll find it's demons principalities and powers that's in Ephesians 2 isn't it the church is to demonstrate to them that although they would like it differently the truth of what they know is reality The church 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. We're to display that. Isn't it great that we have people from more than one nation here? Just in a little microcosm here, we have something of the bigness of the church, God's plan for their nations. And this is a demonstration to principalities and powers where things are heading. <laughs> We're part of the victorious, glorious bride of Christ. So how, how do you think about the church? What got you here this morning? Was that that sense of duty? I'm not here to beat you up. I'm just here to say, no, there's a much bigger, bigger thing going on here. Don't you want to be part of that? We have the gospel that is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes wherever they're from. When we're confronted with people, even who come in among us, who are broken, suffering, sin sick, <laughs> the gospel can transform them. Our society collapsing around us, always, always has been. But the church can transform that by bringing the message of Jesus, the body of Christ coming to Wrexham. We just look at our little number and we think this is not much. No, no, no. This is big. This is cosmic. So where, where do you see yourself in Psalm 45? Are you one of God's people? Does it show? Would people know? Or are you actually an enemy of the king? You know what the king's going to do? The, tom, the psalm tells you. <laughs> Revelation 19 tells you. If you realize that's your predicament, then good news is you can ask Jesus and he will make you one of his people. <laughs> Jesus can make you one of his people. Ask him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. That's a promise from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, no less. Does your heart overflow as you think about Jesus and his church? I think this is something we've got to work on. Let's make that a matter of prayer on Tuesday, even if we're drinking whiskey and and, uh, and eating haggis, um, let's make that a part of our, that the air that we breathe is that we want to overflow in our love for Jesus and his church. And when the royal wedding comes up, are you ready to tell other people what the wedding's really about? Work that one through in your head. And when those conversations come up at work, how about introducing them to the real bridegroom? Use that as an excuse, or any wedding actually. And use your, use your marriage, you married people. Use that 
as a way to display the beauty of Christ and the glory of his church.